Welcome to episode two of Birds on the Mornington Peninsula. Nick and Larry continue their discussions on habitat and changes to bird populations on the Mornington Peninsula and ways that you too can become involved. You know, is there anything that we could be doing or just be recognising of certain areas of really critical importance, possibly? I suppose a process that we have had in the past by creating bushland reserves and the like and large patches of bushes been helpful to preserve that uh, bird population, that bird community. But I think one of the realities of existence or modern existence, and particularly with increasing numbers of people around is that you're going to see a change in the bird population. I would say that, for example, introduced birds, people say, well, why do, you know... Like those Indian miners that we get everywhere now. Some people call them the the flying rats of the sky, for example. (laughs) But they're here to stay now and they're becoming part of our environment. But in the sense of a Mornington Peninsula... Uh, do you feel we're in a healthy position now? As a as a local, the local council seems to be on board. I know we have biolink air where I live. A lot of biolinks going in, and they're for animals, but the birds really benefit. One, yeah, one of the encouraging things, indeed, is that um, you know, like at the moment, uh, there's around about eighteen to twenty percent of the the say what would you call the original um, habitat um, is still preserved. Yeah, yeah, but you've actually changed the mosaic and the arrangement of that natural habitat. So there's more open country, um, there's more urbanisation, that sort of thing. And this is one of the um, realities of uh, modern existence is Mm. that there are just a lot of human beings around. They like to live in certain places. They like to recreate. They like to do all sorts of things. And... The bird community has had to adjust to that. And some adjust really well, don't they? Because, like, oh, yes, they do. I more mean, dams and more birds. Well, that's dams. right. I mean, uh, farm dams have been a tremendous boon. I mean, um, there's, you know, one species of duck that's doing extremely well on the peninsula here because it just loves the farm dams and it uh-huh. likes all the grass. Yeah. And uh, it's going great guns. You get a very healthy population of. Uh, of what they call a wood duck on the on the peninsula. Yeah, well, we had a lot around our dam, and we planted out the dam, and they've nearly all gone. They they must have liked to have the area around the dam where they could fly in and. That's right. Yeah, they like they like grassy areas. They like grassy areas too. And we yeah, used to mess that up a bit. I they think. they call it you know, they call a wood duck a duck. It is a duck, but it's actually more goose like than it yeah. is a duck. Yeah. So, but and and another example is that. Um, the urban areas, people like to uh, plant their native shrubs and the like, flowering shrubs, and that's there are particular birds that like the nectar. Yeah. And so as a consequence, um, a number of honey eaters have actually adapted well to an urban environment. So you do get yeah. um, uh, honey eaters now living in uh, urban areas. Where we used to live, we used to live in suburb Bo Morris and we used to have a lot of honey eaters and birds like that because they were very much native gardens in that area. Yeah. Don't know if they're still like that, but, you know, that was really always a good sign. Well, another example indeed is uh, that's very obvious to anybody on the peninsula is the uh, rainbow lorikeet. Oh. Now, the rainbow lorikeet was largely a, 
um, a bird that lived to the north in New South Wales and Queensland. Oh. And during the 50s and 60s, when people, when native gardens became in vogue and so on, yeah. uh, increasingly the um, rainbow lorikeets moved further and further south and now they are very what, common. getting pushed or just no, growing? They, they just enjoyed the mm. fact that there was all this... Uh, um, these shrubs, flowering shrubs and things there for them to feed oh. on. So, so as a consequence, rainbow lorikeets now are very common yeah. down in southern Victoria here, and that's happened over the last, you know, four or five decades or so. so. And they're just such a beautiful bird that even if they were sort of like too many of them, you'd never care, would you? <laughs> but, but, that, but again, this is one of the dynamics that, we're looking at here because the rainbow lorikeet is also likes nesting in uh, holes and trees and so on. And the existing uh, birds that like to nest in holes and trees, like some of the rosellas, mm-hmm. are now being challenged, you see, because there's a limited number so of uh, nesting hollows around for these things. So if you go to, for example, the briars in... Uh, and Mount Martha there, the rainbow lorikeets now, it's become a sort of rainbow lorikeet breeding central yeah. because they've taken over a lot of the uh, nesting hollows that would have been take, used by oh, rosellas and like, yeah. Because I find up near our place we have the Australian miner. Is that right in saying that? The very noisy, noisy miner? Oh, the noisy miner. Yeah, and... Um, Literally, there we get a lot of them around our place chasing all the other birds and stuff like that, very competitive. It's a fascinating bird, that one, because it's a social bird. It uh, moves around in groups and families and, and larger groups and so on. But it also is very particular about where it likes to live. It likes to live on the edge of uh, forested areas. Yeah. So, and of course, it likes the gum trees. And once you get the noisy miners into your area, indeed, you'll find that the other other birds will move out because they uh, they're very uh, territorial, very aggressive, and so on. And if you have if you happen to have a cat or dog, um, it'll come and and harass the, uh, the cats and dogs as well. So. Well, I don't mind that bit. I mean, the noisy miner is a classic example of how humanity has actually changed the dynamic because uh, noisy miners have probably done very well from uh, uh, humans clearing things. So you end up with uh, your mosaic changing and uh, there's more edge Mm. To the to the bushland and so on, so therefore there are more noisy miners. Right? Yeah. So you know you can blame us for that. <laughs> no, I don't hate them to be honest. I just <laughs> hear people hating them a lot on you know when you listen to radio shows about birds and that, and people go, "Oh, it's the noisiest bird won't stop squawking and stuff like that." I think when they're probably this time of year in spring, they're a lot more noisier than normal. They don't like, um, like I said, cats and dogs and. Mm all that sort of thing, and, and they will chase other birds away as well. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's rather like the magpie, the Australian magpie. Yeah. The Australian magpie um, can individually, they will just take a, a dislike to something for yeah. some reason. Yeah. So, for example, um, particularly in urban areas, the magpies might dive bomb posties only. Yeah. They won't dive bob anybody else, they just dive bob. They're posties. a very intuitive bird, aren't they? <laughs> they know the posties not delivering on time. That's right. He should have been here by now. But um, is that – do you have a favourite bird? And if you do, can it be from down the peninsula, please? 
That's I like I like all birds. Actually, I love that answer. I like all. You know, because I love thinking what's my favourite bird, and I've got to say, kookaburra is up there for me because they're such a beautifully iconic bird. And I sit and watch my kookaburra out the window in the morning, and I just think there is no worms there. I cannot see any grass moving. It's still as anything. I'd see the grass if it was moving. They just go bang, pull out a worm. How do they do that? I mean, they must have brilliant eyes. Most birds do have. Fantastic eyesight, indeed. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, if you th- if you think about the wedge-tailed eagle, he's up, you he's know, up, kilometer up in the sky, and he can spot something from kilometers away and go down and find it, and that's his uh, meal for the uh, for the day. Yeah. You, you know, they seem to fly in pairs a bit. Do you think they're sort of spotting each other, like one taking all the little birds away, so the other one can do? Or did they work uh, as Well, well just- with I think largely with the wedge-tailed eagles, if you see them flying in pairs, it's usually they are actually both out hunting food for their um, for their chick or their fledgling or whatever. Yeah, because yeah, that's where normally if I see one, I normally see the other. Yeah, yeah. And I like you can see them, you can hear the little birds squawking away to keep away from my nest, but best of all, is seeing their shadow first, just come <laughs> over the paddock, you know. It's, yeah, it's amazing how, yeah. how big their wingspan is. Yeah. And I've just changed from Cookaburra probably to the Wedgetail Eagle now. <laughs> but in saying that, I like the idea of a vegetarian bird. I like the idea of these birds that can just live off seeds without killing things the whole time. I must, I must throw one of them in there. What would be a good bird that does that? Probably Rosella maybe. Um, of course, uh, red-browed finch is a good one. That's, what was it? Is that, yeah. is that getting to your favourite one? Am I getting that yeah, out? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. You could get with. I'm going to have to look that one up. I wonder if I've have, I've got that one. Whereabouts is that? It's uh, it's a seed eater, mm-hmm. and it it you'll find it in in open forest areas. So okay. If you go walking in uh, some of the bushland around here, yep. uh, along the path, you're likely to see them. Well, one of the ones that worry me are those birds that don't get off the ground, you know, the fowl-type birds and that. I mean, do we have any left on the peninsula that can't fly? Well, if you want to see a bird that doesn't get off the ground, go to the briars as a pair of emus. And oh, yes. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting development. They've got a resident pair. They've brought them in uh, into their um, specially uh, fox-proofed caged area. Yeah, that's brilliant. And uh, they're breeding in there. Yeah. And um, in fact, so you've been in there to have a look at them? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've only been the time I went to there to the Briars was to see a rock concert. (laughs) And it was huge. It was a great day. (laughs) But yeah, so it must be somewhere else where obviously they wouldn't be having a rock concert right around where all the wildlife (laughs) is. So it must be a big area, this Briars. Yes, it is. It's a large area and. it's a it's a good it's a good preserve to go to. It's one of the uh, what I'd call one of the hotspots for, for birding. Yeah. yeah, and one of the nice things about it is they put in this fox proof electrified fence around a very large patch of uh, forest or uh, no. woodland there, and it's uh, great to have a, a walk around there and uh, and look. And you might indeed come across the hemu. And you, you can't eradicate these foxes, can you, really? I mean, we have foxes at our place and I've seen the damage they do. I've, I've seen them take little... They, uh, they, they try things. hard, but uh, the foxes always come back, I'm afraid. I think, I think that uh, the only way that you'll eliminate foxes from Australia is by introducing um, sterile males, yeah. So to sum up, the type of birds we attract in the future is a reflection of what we do to the habitat. They'll follow the habitat. 
to get rid of the trees and the wooded birds will probably disappear with it. That's right. And you get other brilliant birds, but you'll lose those great wooden birds from the wood. Yeah. Uh, so with the habitat on the Mornington Peninsula, I guess your message is plant more trees or something, is it? That would help indeed, help a lot, yeah. It's important to get as much habitat for birds as you can. There's a lot of good work that's been going on in the peninsula. There are friends groups who are planting trees out here, there and everywhere. Programs around like the BioLinks program, which um, is uh, connecting large patches of bush with corridors of uh, native plants and the like. And uh, and you mentioned plants too, because it's not just trees, isn't it? It's, like it's plant, plants. It's yes. plants as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be- because uh, everybody just thinks, well, just plant a few um, gum trees and uh, it'll be all okay. But it is all to do with the understory as well. So mm-hmm. if you have a layer of plants and shrubbery from the ground up, you'll get a, a greater variety of birds um, um, living in that area. And are you a believer that they should be indigenous to the area, or the plants and trees? or I think they should be, yes, but that being said, uh, any, any native plant would be good, even if you're planting it in your own garden. Yeah. What about other ways? How can people get involved in other ways? What they well, want to do? Yeah, that's what I was saying before about uh, friends groups and the friends like. groups. Yeah. yeah, you can join a, a friends group to plant out um, um, a water course yeah. or someone someone's. Um, Are they hard to find these friends friends groups? If you're in the peninsula, is there a list of them somewhere, or is it just the Shire the Shire, Shire. Council have got a list, oh, so you can actually uh, inquire through. The might be Shire. on their website. Possible. I'll have to have a look. It's possible. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, that's um. And what's the average age group? Do you think of of like people interested in birds as uh, a range? Or? It, well, it's probably a bit like me. Uh, you don't start. Getting interested when you got until you got a bit of spare time, and that's when you retire. Mm. So as a consequence, uh, the average age is probably uh, you know late fifties and sixties and so on. Yeah. But that being said, there still are um, younger people who get interested in uh, bird watching. Some people naturally are inclined to it, like mm. you know, you, uh, there's Sean Dooley, of course, the bird man, the bird man. <laughs> He started off in uh, in primary school at uh, at Seaford. Uh, well, a little known fact is that my grandson goes to the exact same primary school. Oh, I see. And I asked him about that. I said, "Has anyone given you binoculars at school? <laughs> you know that uh, the teacher or anything?" And he says, "No." But there is there's uh, like uh, Birds Australia have uh, instituted this uh, birds in schools program for the last uh, couple of years. Unfortunately, with COVID and that, it hasn't really got off the ground. But um, a lot of the uh, Melbourne Central schools um, have been, uh, have have taken up with this and there's a move to try and get this going on the peninsula as well. So in in our branch, we actually have a couple of committee members who go into schools on a regular basis um, to introduce um, school children to... uh, Birds and bird watching and bird appreciation and that. So, so and they do this very, in their own time, do they? They do it in their own time. It's all volunteer work. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Quite often, the science teacher at the primary school will call up the club and say, oh, okay. uh, "You know, if you got a, if you got a, um, a, a person who could come and introduce the kids to uh, to bird watching and the like," and that's usually usually the way that it works out. And so, well, it's interesting you say that because we had the science teacher. 
approached us and we did a bio link and we got uh, we did three plantings and the first planting perfect they put them in the right spots where all, all the grass was burnt out so the tree could grow and when the school kids came and did it they all got bored with doing that and they just planted them anywhere and three four years later guess what guess which area has been better for the birds probably the one the kids planted <laughs> the one the kids planted the other thing I was going to ask you is uh, how do you become a member of a bird group? Well, the easiest way to do it, in fact, is uh, go online to uh, Birds Australia on their website and it'll give you all the details. Um, depending on where you live in the country, there'll be branches of Birds Australia all over the place and um, the, the, certainly the local uh, group will be very helpful in yeah. uh, getting you signed up and all reason. There's an annual subscription to join, of course, but... Um, well, we pay, it's not much, just a minimum, but we only get a magazine delivered. And I've got to say, I love reading this magazine. They're just brilliant pictures and stories of birds and the movement. I yeah. learn something every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing is uh, getting gifts. I think it's a great gift, is bird books, which is why your book... Uh, where to find birds in around Frankston and Mornington Peninsula should be in print because that would be a great present. But I think general field guide books are really great presents as well. They are indeed. Or even nowadays, if you're really up with it, uh, you can always uh, buy an app for someone to put on their mobile phone. So there is a range of apps that you can buy, is there? Oh, that's yes. interesting. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and and they're bird identification apps or something. Yeah, like that. they're, they're great. And it even goes further than that nowadays. Uh, you can actually get an app to um, uh, help you identify the bird. So you can take a photo mm. and... Uh, Put it into the app, and the app will um, tell you the the species that it is. So it's it's fantastic. I must say, I, it's it's probably been my big barrier of being involved with birds is that I have a field book and I see a bird, and then I go back and try and identify in the book, and I just in the end going, I'm not too sure which one it is because it is hard to learn and remember this what you saw. Well, I think I think it's a combination of things. Um, if you actually go out with a, a group of uh, bird watchers um, uh, for a, at least for a while, you'll pick up on all the common birds, and uh, that helps a lot. But I must say, it is quite a challenge when you uh, start off with uh, bird watching. Is actually to separate out mm. which birds are you looking at, which group of birds are you looking at, and that sort of thing. But it's very difficult, and some birds, you know, they're like the. The, the female, the male, and then the um, baby bird. What's that called? The baby bird. Yeah, juvenile. Juvenile. They all, you know, look different, and you sometimes think, "Why are those three hanging out together? They're three different looking birds." <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The uh, with the um, backyard bird count, have you been involved in that ever? Oh yes, uh, there's an uh, annual event. Um, yeah. And is it spring when they do spring, it? Spring. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's good fun. Um, you can do it anywhere. You can do it outside your own back door or more broadly speaking, if you've got a local park you like going to or local bushland reserve, um, you go in there and uh, count the birds for a period of time and then submit it to the to the database. Yeah. And that really helped on the database getting a big broad on a particular time of where well, birds it's, are. Well, it's, uh, it's probably ancillary to that, I mean, the database largely has been populated by dedicated bird observers and mm. bird watchers and so on, but they have tried to encourage as much as possible what they, you know, 
the term citizen scientist. Yeah. Get uh, individual anybody involved uh, once they get a grip on uh, what they're looking at. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's something you can do if you're not on the peninsula and you want to support, you can be involved in um, joining clubs and donating and, and doing things like that. So I guess it's a big need to have people involved and it's a great fun thing to be involved. Opens it opens up a completely different um, outlook on life is to actually observe birds, that's for sure. Yeah, and we're talking just birds. We're not even talking about butterflies and bees and all the other flying insects. But it <laughs> not to mention the bats and oh, we didn't mention the bats, did we? I wanted to mention, but the bats aren't birds, are they? No, they're not. They're mammals. Yeah, yeah, they're flying mammals. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, I did see when I was in Greensbush. I, I camped out overnight and I saw these three really big bats fly over, and I I didn't think they were from around. I know you get them in the city at the zoo. You see them. That's a bit unusual, indeed. Down for down here. Yeah, and there's three, three big bats, ones yeah. right above, right above us, and I thought, I wonder where they come from. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, look, Larry, thank you very much for um, joining us today and enlightening us a bit on the birds on the peninsula. Um, thanks, Peter, for doing production, and thanks, listeners, for listening. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Nichemark, your right-hand team for digital marketing, social media, and podcasting. Thinking of starting a podcast? You do the talking, we do the tech. Contact Nichemark to get started. Mm-hmm.